0: So I was thinking as I was driving over here about my first experience of dying, of death, somebody dying, and that was my father died very suddenly when I was 16 years old. And of course, I was completely unprepared. Nobody had ever talked about death or I knew nothing about it, it was a shock. That was followed in five years' time. My mother died when I was 21. Same kind of scenario. My father had died of a heart attack suddenly. My mother was killed in an automobile accident very suddenly. So both of them were like gone into death. So there was, there was a, a real sense now in looking back. I felt it at the time, but I would not have been able to articulate it there was such a lack of understanding, preparation, support, or any kind of um, normalcy. You know, it it was all tragedy and just horrible, and it should never have happened, you know, this kind of attitude. To a 16-year-old, it was just, it was like shame, like being different from my friends because my father had died. You know, those kinds of adolescent feelings. So now, as my adult self looking back on this time and, and uh, many other people's experiences as well, I see in many ways our culture it so poorly prepares people for dying, so poorly even understands, I feel, as a Buddhist practitioner, even understands what it's about, So we're going to look at this territory today of death and the idea of a good day to die as a day in which, one, there's not complete lack of familiarity with the territory. Two, that there's some sense of not being completely shocked by the fact of death, three, that there's a sense of having prepared as best one can. And this, of course, is part of the dance with death is, supposedly, we know we're going to die. But even (laughs) that is open to question. (laughs) Like Stephen Levine was teaching once, Many years ago, he did a lot of work on death and dying, and he, was, he tells the story of standing on a stage, looking out over hundreds of people, and saying to them, asking them, how many of you are going to die? <laughs> and he said it took a really long time for people to raise their hands. We kind of get it, but it's mostly happening to other people, so, you know. So so there is that fact that we are going to die. And there is that fact that we don't know when. We can't plan, although there's a discussion now about assisted suicide and all that, you know. But most of us do not plan the good day to die. Nor do we know how we're going to die. What are the circumstances of our death? could be sudden could be an accident it could be all kinds of things could be a long illness could be we die in our sleep so we're we're dealing with something that is because of the so many unknowns our minds tend to rush in with all kinds of projections you know and mostly fears about things what we'd like, what we don't want, well, (laughs) you know, we, but mostly what our culture does is indulge in a great deal of denial, denial of death itself. The author Sam Harris wrote, While we try not to think about it, nearly the only thing we can be certain of in this life is that we will one day die and leave everything behind. And yet paradoxically, it seems almost impossible to believe that this is so. Our felt sense of what is real seems not to include our own death. We doubt the one thing that is not open to any doubt at all. And that's what we do. A common view of death in our culture is that it is the enemy, something to fight, to defeat. It is true that death defeats or wipes out our ego's mission in life. What is our ego's mission in life? Huh? To survive, to to be in charge, to be on top of things, to control things to our liking. That's success, right? Does death have that as its, does death, yeah, it doesn't seem to care about all that.
1: <laughs>
0: or as Jack LaLanne said, um, you know, he was the fitness guru, he said, I can't afford to die, it would wreck my image. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: or the father of a student of mine who described her, her, own, her father's dying process. And he had been a very successful, wealthy, hard-charging uh, oil executive in Texas, used to being in charge, getting his way. And as he was dying, she said, he kept saying to her over and over again, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if this was a huge mistake. I blew it. So, so the culture itself doesn't help us with accepting the completely natural event of dying. When we go outside in nature, what do we see? We see life, and we see death, and it's all mixed up together. We see trees that are dying, we see new flowers sprouting, it's all in there. And somehow we imagine it should only be, you know, eternal spring. So we have this habit of not looking, not wanting to think about. Another very strong habit of mind that we all seem to have is maybe the neuroscientists could explain this as part of our the survival uh, strategies of the brain that uh, it served us to imagine that Tomorrow will be like today. That there is some sense of, of of things going on as they are, continuing on and on forever. That we can count on some degree of permanence. There is a song from the 70s from the movie Fame, I'm gonna live forever. I'm gonna live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly, I'm going to live forever, baby, remember my name. You know, that kind of search for immortality and foreverness. And as, as children, they lived happily ever after. I must say, I must have been a somewhat curious child because I always wondered what that looked like. What does that ever after part look like? (laughs) Nobody could ever really (laughs) explain that to me. There didn't seem to be ever afters in my life. So this I read in an article about climate change. by Roy Scranton. It was in the New York Times. It's, it's a very good article, but he makes this point about this tendency of mind. The human psyche naturally rebels against the idea of its end. Likewise, civilizations have throughout history marched blindly toward disasters because humans are wired to believe that tomorrow will be much like today. It is unnatural for us to think that this way of life This present moment, this order of things, is not stable and permanent. Across the world today, our actions testify to our belief that we can go on like this forever, burning oil, poisoning the seas, killing off other species, pumping carbon into the air. Yet the reality of global climate change is going to keep intruding on our fantasies, just as the reality of mortality shocks our casual faith in permanence. We kind of assume permanence. And perhaps we deny death or shield ourselves from too much exposure to it or knowledge of it, because the stories we hear or invent about death or dying are mostly scary stories and not particularly well informed. We project onto death all kinds of ideas and fears, much like we did as children when we imagined the boogeyman in the closet. We, we, we made it up in the same way when we're not going to do this today but if i've done this with groups where we go into our stories about death and mostly they're they're just stories i mean they they are they're just stories that we invent and then freak out about <laughs> so our our biggest thing is to see that that produces fear and that's not a a uh, useful emotion when we're engaging with this inevitable reality. Or as Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> so I want to share with you today some of the teachings of the Buddha which provide a corrective to some of these attitudes the denial of death, the belief in permanence, the idea that death is something to fear and shun and not turn our attention to. Actually, in the Buddhist tradition, we counter all of that by making death the object of our attention, making the fact of it something to open ourselves to, to wonder about, to explore our own ideas and feelings quite carefully so that we come into another way of preparing ourselves for death, partly through familiarity, partly through seeing our own capacity that has developed through meditation, to be present For whatever arises. The teachings give us another focus, another way to prepare ourselves other than by telling ourselves scary stories. And in meditation we literally learn not literally, it's the wrong word. In meditation we learn about death. What do I mean? We learn to let go. From the moment we sit down in meditation and we're told to let go of our thinking and come back to the breath, we are beginning our practice for dying. We are learning to let go. And that is the training that the mind is opening itself to when we practice mindfulness. We think that we're going to get a lot from meditation. Now, we do, but not in the way that we imagine. (coughs) We get a lot by learning to let go, and that's paradoxical, and something in us may resist. Well, no, I'm not here to let go. No, I came to find out the, you know, ten stages of the enlightenment, (laughs) blah, blah. (laughs) Here's what the Dalai Lama says. Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are useless. So in the Buddhist tradition, this this awareness of impermanence, this awareness of the inescapable uh, truth of death and dying is to be turn towards and reflected on as a way of preparing ourselves. So part of that reflection is to ask the question, what is it that dies? What is it that dies? Does anything not die? So, I'll give you my thoughts about that. <laughs> it seems to me, from my own observation and from what I can tell, that the body definitely dies. Would you agree? Yes. Bodies seem to disappear. And with the body goes the brain, right? The brain where all our memories of this life are stored, where all our likes and dislikes and fantasies and dreams and aspirations and all of that live in the brain and help us to navigate this part of our existence. But that all goes. So, to the degree that we think the body is who I am, then there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some fear because it will seem like you are dying. But is that true? Or is there something else that does not die? What the Buddha called the deathless. I cannot sit here and tell you where to find that. <laughs> Just tell me where to go to get the deathless and I'll be home free. That's not how it works. <laughs> it, it requires more of us, this understanding of something that does not die. It requires usually some years of practice and paying attention and getting to know this body-mind really, really well. Understanding that the body is on one journey, the mind, in the big sense of the word, not the cognitive thinking mind, but the mind, at capital M, consciousness, is on another journey. They're two different journeys, and at death they separate. So Eckhart Tolle, when he was talking to Oprah Winfrey, this was on television, Now we can hear about the deathless on television. I love it. Let's see. Oprah asked Eckhart Tolle, what happens after we die? So he was sitting, talking to Oprah, and this is what he said. Sounded pretty good to me. (laughs) He said, I know that the essence of who I am is indestructible. The deathless. Physics tells us that energy never gets destroyed, but only transformed. Whatever it is that animates this physical form is no longer going to animate this form. Looking at my parents' bodies after they died, I saw very clearly the form was there, but the essence of that being was no longer there. Many of you have had this experience. It's like, where did they go? There's a body. But where where are they? The essence of that being was not the form. The essence is not in the form, in the body. It inhabited the form for a period of time. The life within that form was always invisible. but we make a mistake in our perception. We think it is the form, but it's only, it's not. It's invisible. The life that inhabits the form has no form itself. It is always invisible. So when somebody dies, the life within that once animated the form is gone. Where does it go? Anybody know? Where does it go? It's so mysterious. It was here and now it's gone. Where is it? We don't know. This is the great mystery. But we do know that there is the difference here. He's pointing to the difference between we could say the form, the body, and the formless. So the Buddha, when he was visiting a, an old sick man, was asked by the man he, he was dying. The, the man asked the Buddha he, and if he had any advice, and the Buddha said, "Yes, I do." He said, "Though your body is sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus you should train yourself. The mind doesn't have to be sick. What does that mean? The Buddha said to another sick person, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, there is no reason to fear. In other words, when the mind has been developed with these good qualities, these spiritual qualities, then there is something going on that is not sick. The being, the invisible life force, is not touched by this illness or the death of the body. Is this too much for you? (laughs) I'm getting a little worried looking at your faces. (laughs) It's a lot. We're just jumping right in. But why not? You don't have to agree with what I'm saying. I'm just giving you some thoughts. And please, you know, Go look into your own experience. This is not dogma. This is not Buddhist metaphysics of how it is. But it's meant to inspire your own inquiry. Because that's the whole basis of the Buddhist teaching, is the Buddha said, come see for yourself if what I say is true. Don't just take my word for it. So look into your own experience. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been perhaps quite ill, but you were calm, you were peaceful, you were at ease, you were maybe even at times happy? (coughs) A friend of mine who was in a terrible automobile accident and was... I think she went unconscious for a little bit, and then she woke up and she was lying on the pavement and her bones were broken. She was a wreck. You know, her body was really a wreck. And she said, I've never been in so much bliss in all my life. How do you account for that? So how things look and the internal experience that somebody's having may be quite different. I could tell you another story, do you want to hear another story? I don't want to scare you. Uh, Let's see if I can find this other story. Another woman who was in a terrible bus accident. Maybe I didn't bring it with me. Oh, no, here it is. Um, she, was tra- she was a kind of a hippie. She was traveling through Laos on her way to a retreat in India. Uh, she was on a public bus, and a logging truck screeched around a corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus I was riding. My left arm was shredded to the bone... My back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half. My heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. Lungs collapsed. Diaphragm punctured. I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out. And it would be more than 14 hours before I received real medical care. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I've never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. Then night, they were trying to find help, but they were so far out, You know, it took a long time. So nar- night came, and she saw darkness was falling, and then she became convinced she was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered That's an important word, surrendered. An amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone-deep peace I could never have imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experiences. Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, the idea the universe is a seamless mesh in which every action ripples across the whole fabric of space and time. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized then that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. I realize then that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. You could say love, connection, peace. So this is speaking, these stories are speaking of pointing to this reality of the mind and the body being on different journeys. So in our meditation practice, we are learning to let go. We are learning to, as some authors write, we are learning to die before we die. We are learning to die to all the ways that we hold on to our sense of what I want, what I don't want, what I must have, what I cannot do without. You know this if you've done any practice. You know how you get challenged on the cushion, right? You get challenged in all different ways. And sometimes you think uh, that the meditation is doing this to you, but it's not. It's just showing you how we operate, what's in there, the grasping. And the, the Buddha talked about three basic ways, causes of our suffering. The greed, wanting things, wanting things, wanting things, wanting things endlessly, aversion, not wanting things, not wanting things, (laughs) not wanting, endlessly, and delusion, having fantasies about life. So, we learn a lot about ourselves and about how we hold on, about how we construct a world, and in that world, we're often caught in our own spin of confusion. And we learn to undo that to some degree. So this is a preparation, you could say, for the big letting go that comes with death. It also teaches us, as we are letting go, it teaches us something about trust. We learn that letting go leads us somewhere. It doesn't Desert us in a black hole where we're, you know, just lost. It can. We have may have that fear or that concern about letting go, but the reality is often quite different. It actually leads to greater peace, greater sense of wholeness, completeness, trust that you are. You're, you're fine without the props that you think you need. But that's a whole journey. But meditation can take us there. So... Um, Part of what goes on with the idea of death is that we all want to know what's going to happen. I see that in myself. You probably see that in yourself. We want to. So there's there's a lot now going on in spiritual circles about preparing to, for death and you know preparation and wanting a good death and so getting the music you want and the friends lined up to come in and you know. <laughs> you just have the perfect orchestrated beautiful death now that's lovely I mean it's sort of fun to think about well if I could really you know you know what would I want you know that's nice but there's no guarantees huh yeah it's a step in acceptance that's true but there's no guarantees that that's the, how you will how it will happen for you you know so um, so we 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 think that by preparing well that we we are in control of that piece of our fate. Now, the Buddha would would say yes, in a certain way we can predict the future. In a certain way we can predict the future. What what might what is he talking about? We're we're certain we're going to die, but even more, in a more subtle fashion than that, we can predict pretty much how we're going to be, well, let me give you the example of if you come in to sit in meditation, you sit down and then you make yourself available to whatever arises, right? We don't know what will arise in our minds in 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 2 hours, 3 hours from now. What kind of mind state will you be in? We don't know. We can't predict because things arise. But we can, in some sense, predict that if we have learned calmness and stability of mind, that whatever does arise in three hours time, we will be there with that calmness and stability to meet it. We can look and see how we are practicing now and see that if we continue practicing in that way, there will be a good chance that that will be present with us to meet whatever is happening as we are dying. The more experiences we have on the cushion and the more we learn to meet those experiences with some degree of clarity, kindness, calmness, presence, the more likely it is that we'll be able to meet whatever comes later. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's no small thing to know. Eckhart Tolle again, he said, your entire life journey ultimately consists of the step you are taking at this moment. There is always only this one step. This doesn't mean you don't know where you are going. It just means this step is primary, the destination secondary. What you encounter at your destination once you get there, depends on the quality of this step. Another way of putting it, what the future holds for you depends on your state of consciousness now. If you are a person who just overreacts and gets overwhelmed really easily about everything that comes along, we probably all know people like that then that's, that's something that's being practiced, you could say. And it's likely that that same kind of reaction will happen when that person is facing something difficult. But this meditation gives us other resources, gives us another possibility for how to meet what comes along. This is such an important understanding. The future depends not on what happens to us, but how we meet it. The future depends not on what happens to us, but on how we meet it. Our state of consciousness. Will it be fear? Will it be kindness? Will it be equanimity? Will it be... Courage. What we practice now will be present then. Mostly we try to control the externals. You know, like the idea of preparing for our death. We try to, like having a party, you want all the things in place. So that everything is lined up as we like it to be. Lama Yeshi, wonderful Tibetan Lama. This is called When the Chocolate Runs Out. (laughs) Chocolate comes, chocolate goes. Chocolate disappears. All such transient pleasures are like this. But take heart. There is another kind of happiness available to you, a deep abiding joy that comes from your own mind. This kind of happiness is always with you, always available. Whenever you need it, it's always there. I know a woman, well I I visited a woman who was dying, and um, she had been on a feeding tube for 18 months just to stay alive. So for her the chocolate had run out, no more chocolate. And this will happen in different ways to all of us, something that we love. What is your favorite pleasure? It will eventually disappear. That's just the way it is. That is the way it is. So we practice with that understanding. This is the way it is. We can't always have our favorite things there to help us feel better. But if you have trained in meditation, you will have something with you. Always that will help you feel better, feel more uh, It's hard to find the right word. Have a capacity to meet whatever is there. Huh? more prepared, yes. Just there. Okay, I can do this moment to moment. So, that's one way that we can kind of get a sense of how to prepare and feel what the future might hold for us. Another way that's very much in the Buddhist tradition is this understanding that as R.L. Stevenson wrote, sooner or later we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. <laughs> what is that banquet of consequences? We could say the karma of our, our, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, eventually shows itself. What we do has Ripples. If we've lived a life of generosity, of kindness, of care for people, that's going to show up in our banquet of consequences. If we have lived a life of, you know, cheating and being mean to people, that will show up in our banquet of consequences. It's just the way it is. It's a law, you could say. It's a natural law. As Ruth Dennison... One of our beautiful senior teachers who since has passed away, she always used to say, Darling, we don't get away with anything. (laughs) I think when we're young, we sort of think we will get away with things. We don't quite get the law of consequences. But as we get older, we see how it works more clearly. So living a life in which good qualities of heart and mind, of living ethically, virtuously, we have a greater chance of ending our days without regret or remorse. And one of the beautiful things about gatherings like this, where we're looking at some ways to prepare ourselves for dying, is that if we do have regret, if we do have remorse, we still have time to take care of that. We still have time to make amends, whether it's communication or whether it's some kind of internal forgiveness or what, whatever form it takes, we have time to make it right so that our heart feels complete with that. the Dalai Lama again if one cultivates spiritual qualities such as harmony humility non-attachment patience love compassion wisdom then one becomes equipped to deal effectively with the problems of this life and because the wealth one is amassing is spiritual rather than material it will not have to be left behind at death we will not enter death we will not enter death empty-handed those Qualities of being will be with us. So living a good life, seeing that what we practice now is likely to show up later, letting go, learning how to let go, and that's a big part of meditation. How many of you here have sat a retreat up on the hill? So, when you sit retreats, you know, and those who haven't yet, you will have this experience. There's a lot of letting go that's required just to go on retreat. (laughs) Letting go of your cell phones. That's the biggest thing (laughs) these days is like technology, getting people to let go of their devices. It didn't used to be that way. I don't, you know. Anyway, letting go of our favorite routines and habits and foods and activities and all of that is part of being on retreat. You just let it go. So inherent in this teaching is this emphasis The monks and nuns of our tradition, they are the models of what is called renunciation. They have let go of everything. They have let go of everything except two robes, a bowl for their food, their shoes. That's about it. They're not even allowed to have refrigerators to store food in. They just live day to day from what's given to them, from what comes their way. So they're the models of this. Not many of us are going to be living like that. But it's helpful to know there are people who do that. It just inspires me in my own practice of letting go. Yeah. You know, come on, Anna. (laughs) It's not time for cafe latte, you know? (laughs) So, as we get older, I think this idea of letting go makes more sense because we're beginning to see a horizon. We're beginning to get the idea that somebody's got to clean out this garage and maybe it's me. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of letting go of our stuff the accumulation of years of things makes more sense. The idea of simplifying may make more sense. The idea of sharing our wealth with others may make more sense. But it takes, it takes a while because we're so used to carrying so much in our lives. The burdens of our lives are unlike, I think, any other time in history. We have so much we carry with us. In one day we are subject to so many pieces of information and they themselves can become a source of a burden. Uh, You know, it's just really a lot to deal with compared to the way people lived on this planet for centuries. So I'm looking for my old friend Sisyphus, because he had this problem. (laughs) (laughs) This is by Stephen Mitchell. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. (laughs) We don't realize sometimes the burdens we are carrying until we... Let them go." And then it's like, wow, it's a whole new world. So that's a good thing to remember about letting go because it seems we have some resistance to it at times. And then I'd like to read uh, something that Achon Sumedha, one of the monks in our tradition, wrote about letting go and the practice of letting go. He said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this, go into that, understand this, read the suttas, study the Abhidhamma, then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamika and the Prajnaparamita, Get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, <laughs> write books and become a world renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go. Let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) And I hate to say it, but it's sort of true. So this is our practice. let go and some of the letting go is our stories that we tell ourselves about our life about death about who we are our self judgments our unfulfilled longings so we're going to practice a little bit with this letting go I want to um, let's just see if there's something I'm forgetting. I think that's, I think I'll stop there. So we're going to do a walking meditation. I've said a lot here. And I want you just to have time. So let's do this in silence. I want you to have time to be with your experience of how all these words have Affected you or turned you off i 'm never coming back to spirit rock <laughs> it's too depressing. you know see how things are moving inside of you, and whatever your response is it's fine it's just your response, and we'll be you'll be able to work with it as the day goes on um, so any questions? Yes. Is that right? about what happens to long-term practitioners who are affected by dementia or Alzheimer's? Do any of these happen? Yes. That's a good question and we, d- you know, because... Uh, okay, the question is do, do we have any research or information about the effect on long-term practitioners of dementia or Alzheimer's? We do not because we're not old enough, you know. <laughs> We're we're the first generation, pretty much, to be called long-term practitioners. So, you know, come find me in 30 years or something, and I'll let you know. Um, I mean, I don't know, but what I say is that the hab again, the habit of mind, of being present, of letting go, of wanting to be here. I want to be here. I find being in the present very, it's just the best place to be. Why would I want to be anywhere else? I don't think that habit is going to leave me. And so, maybe I won't remember the name of the president. and I don't really care about that so much. But I will be here in some form. and. There was actually here's one example of um, oh what's his name? This is the, the name thing. There is a monk there was a monk in our tradition who came to a conference we had here when the Dalai Lama came. Beautiful Cambodian monk. Uh, maybe it was Gosananda. did he have dementia? Yeah. He arrived at this conference in his beautiful orange robes. I don't know how old he was. He looked like he was in his 70s or 80s. And it didn't appear that he knew too much about what was going on, but he was there somehow. And he just beamed the whole time. It didn't matter that whatever was going on in him, he was fine. He just was standing around beaming and nodding and smiling. <laughs> he had a fine old time.
1: Yeah. Um, Jack tells a story of someone who, he, a dear friend, who is clearly um, in the throes of dementia and um, he'd been a long-time practitioner. And there was a, a gathering at his house and he opened the, uh, oh, yeah. this gentleman opened the yes. door. I said, well, I don't know who you are, but please come in. Yes, uh-huh.
0: I don't know who you are, but please come in. Yeah, I remember hearing that story, too. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, some one of the things that I think gets underestimated is the reactions of people to dementia and Alzheimer's. The caretakers often are very disturbed, and how can that not affect a person, you know, to make them feel like they're somehow there's something terribly wrong (coughs) that they don't remember things. I think memory is a little overrated, (laughs) don't you, I mean, you
1: know,
0: know, it's not the most important thing. It's part of our clinging. It's part of our clinging, right. Okay, yes.
1: just to ask, are you going to be covering after death experiences in this workshop?
0: No, we will not be covering after-death experiences in this workshop. Um, I have not had any.
1: <laughs>
0: huh? <laughs> I might have and not realized it. Well, we're not going there because... I don't see that it helps too much. I mean, you know, if it helps you, fine, but that's not the focus. Yeah. Okay, so let's stay in silence. I would r- encourage you to, um, and then just we'll go out and walk for a half an hour. Please come back by uh, noon. Would somebody ring the bell at five of noon?
1: Any instructions for walking there?
0: Um, Do you need instructions?
1: Um, I I have my own way of doing it, but I'm assuming that there are people who may not.
0: If anybody wants walking instructions, come up here, up front. The rest of you can go on and do whatever walking you, you, you want. I don't have a preference.
1: Thank you for listening.